There is a notion that has crept into the church. Simple, simple notion. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. What's your story? Now that may seem innocent and innocuous enough, but that little engine often carries behind it the little caboose that says everybody has their own truth. Everybody has their own truth. I want to introduce a couple uh, people from church history to you, and I want to distance myself from thinking, I'm telling you these about these fellows because they have a story. They do have a story, and it's instructive to us to see how God worked in their lives and used them in times past. The first man is named Simon Agawamani. Yes, it's a strange name. He was a Dakota Indian, and he was one of the first male convert under the missionaries who labored in uh, western Minnesota. And in about the 1840s, he came to Christ. Now, before he came to Christ, he was known in the village and in the tribe as a great, brave warrior. For he had stood down an Ojibwa who had a gun pointed right at him. And he had eventually taken that away from him. And the implication is, used it against himself. So, like David's mighty men, he had earned a name among the three, and perhaps he was even chief among the three. Up till that time in the mission, no men had come to Christ. No men had come over and joined the church, several women. And so, the danger was that this man would be mocked mercilessly as joining with the woman's religion, which they regarded Christianity to be. But because he was such a brave, there was kind of a protocol that you didn't criticize a brave like that. So he didn't suffer that kind of mockery, at least from the men and women of the village, only from the children. But he endured by God's grace and is a monument and an example to us of here is a lost son who had come to Christ. Now the other man I'd like to tell you about is named Henry or Harry Phillips. Uh, Harry Phillips received a great deal of money, most of his father's fortune, and he was to take that and transport it from one location to another. But he fell out along the way and he gambled most of it away, all of it in the end. He eventually lost all of it. Now there are many stories where uh, a prodigal now and then squanders his whole inheritance. But the year was 1535, and the man was in England. His father was a member of parliament, and a gentleman, and a very important man. And when he lost all this money, it was a great shame to the name of that family and to the house. Well, never underestimate uh, the wiles of the Catholic Church, or of uh, those uh, who run it. Uh, the Bishop of London heard about this man's losing all this money and offered him uh, a great sum of money, even greater than what he had lost, if he could go and find out that arch-heretic, that demon from the pit of hell himself, William Tyndale, and could somehow trap him and capture him. Well, 
Henry Phillips took up the challenge. He went over uh, to what is Belgium, to Antwerp, and found him. And he was kind of an engaging and a gregarious man. And he was taken into Tyndale's confidence. And eventually, uh, he set up a trap by which William Tyndale was arrested. And about a year later, he was martyred. Well, whatever happened, he got his money, apparently. He stood with it through all the trial to make sure he did get his money. And we don't know what happened to him later on. There's no indication that he ever repented of his sins. But I want to ask you this question at the beginning. Suppose he had. Suppose he had then later repented of his sins. Suppose he had turned to Christ. Would we receive him into our church Would we embrace him as a lost son who has now been found? Would we rejoice over him with the same joy that the father rejoiced over his lost son as those in heaven rejoice when a sinner turns to himself? With that question before our minds, we're going to turn to this passage about the prodigal son. But before we do, let's once again pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this beautiful day you've given us. We thank you for mercies new every morning, for sustaining us, for letting your word uh, be brought uh, into our tongue that we might read it, that we might hear it, we might receive it. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning and give me a mouth to speak and give us above all your spirit to enlighten the eyes of our understanding in your holy and blessed ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. There are three lost things in this chapter. Three lost things in this chapter. One of a hundred sheep are lost. One of ten silver coins is lost. And one of two sons is lost. But there is one theme that unites them all. The joy that ensues when what was lost is finally found. And there's one grand, glorious doctrine illustrated by all three of these parables. The wonder, the marvel, the testament to sovereign grace displayed in the conversion of a sinner. What a wonder it is. This, or we could say these illustrations, explain, are, are explained and punctuated by two verses uniting those three parables together, verse 10 and verse 7. Look with me, first of all, at verse 7. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety and nine just persons who need no repentance. And then verse 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I'm going to focus a moment on this last verse, this verse 10. This is a verse that requires some meditation. Some verses require quick and ready obedience. Some verses give us facts and context, history and genealogy. Some verses of the Bible give us comfort and strength. Some verses of it give us prophecy and hope. This verse solicits us. This verse invites us. This verse calls us to reflect and to meditate upon what it's saying. It invokes meditation, but why? Why? Because of several things. First of all, it describes a scene in heaven beyond our usual experience. 
or we might say, beyond any experience that we have ever had. As Jesus had said on another occasion, if I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? If it's hard hard enough for us to understand the parables and earthly analogies that Jesus gave to the people of God and to the people, how much harder would it be, Jesus is saying, if I told you directly of heavenly things? So because this is a glimpse into heaven itself, it should be an occasion for reflection and meditation. Secondly, it refers to created beings we are not generally acquainted with, the angels of God. The angels of God. I doubt that any of us are personally acquainted with an angel. They do appear, and some have experienced some interaction with angels. We read that throughout the scriptures, and even in the book of Hebrews, that be careful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So it is certainly a possibility but it is a great rarity, and so we don't know much about the angels. So we should pause and stop, think, and meditate. Thirdly, it presents activity that is at the same moment perplexing and intriguing. Perplexing and intriguing. Joy in the presence of the angels. Or your version might say, joy before the angels of God. Look back with me at verse 7. There the joy is simply stated as joy in heaven over one sinner who turns. Here in verse 10, it is joy before the angel of God. Now note with me that this same word before or in the presence of is used down in verse 18. Here he says, the prodigal, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I have sinned against heaven and before you, or in your presence. Now notice how he interprets his own meaning then in verse 21. He says, And the son said to him, to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, we shall see as we get into the parable, but uh, uh, just to preview that, that the son receives this inheritance, and it was rightly given to him. It was his inheritance to do with, in some sense, as he will. So he hadn't directly sinned against his father, except inasmuch as he violated the fifth commandment and did not honor his father in the way that he conducted himself. But he didn't directly sin against his father, but he did so in the full knowledge and the presence of before the eyes of his father. So in the same way that word is being used back here about the angels, that this joy going on is in their presence. It's before them. So the question is, are the angels themselves rejoicing? Are they the ones who are joying in heaven? A lot of commentators go right to that. Look, the angels are rejoicing. But it doesn't say directly the angels are rejoicing. I looked at every reference to angel or angels in the entire Bible. And here's some of the conclusions and things that we find about angels. One, 
They are sent out as messengers. They are sent out as messengers time and again. We read that uh, in Hebrews, that they are sent out as swift messengers and elsewhere. Second, they are sent to aid God's people. Are they not set forth to minister to those who shall be the heirs of salvation? The angels are sent on that mission in particular to help God's people. And you can remember how they came and ministered to Jesus after his days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness. They are often sent to announce judgment, to announce warnings, and to announce good news and glad tidings. They are sent to carry out God's judgments at times, sent to carry them into practice. And they are often witnesses to a variety of things. They are often there standing by while great events are happening just to be witnesses of those things. As Paul said to Timothy, I charge you before God and the elect angels to observe this commandment without spot or blemish. The angels were to witness the the charge that was being given to Timothy and to see to his carrying it out. Second, they are always attendant upon God. They are always there about him. Uh, You can think with me of Isaiah chapter 6. There were the seraphim all around the throne of God. There they are, covering their face, covering their feet, and with two wings flying in his presence. And then, most remarkably and most often, we think of the angels are worshipers of God. They are constantly in his presence, worshiping the true and living God, unless they're off on one of these errands and messages. But in all of Scripture, the angels are never spoken of as happy or sad, joyful or grieved, angry or peaceful, We do read that they neither marry nor are given in marriage, and this may explain a lot of it. That's kind of meant as a joke, (laughs) but it might, might well explain. They don't have our usual human experiences, and consequently, they don't have our human emotions and reactions to things. But, excluding the controversial Genesis chapter 6 for the moment, there is one passage that gives us some indication that the angels aren't simply stoic automatons with no thought or will. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. So are these angels purely robots? No thought, no reflection, no will, no emotion? 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12. Here, Peter, writing about the Spirit of God, working in the past through the prophets to reveal and prophesy of the coming of Christ and all that he would accomplish. It says, verse 12, to them, the prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. So the angels at least are standing about witnessing what the gospel is doing in transforming people's lives and people responding it. And they're curious. There's a great interest 
on their part. But there's something there that they just can't enter into. The angels are not going to, the fallen angels are not to be redeemed. They have no redeemer. They are fallen and fallen forever, held in bondage until the day of judgment. And the elect angels are confirmed in righteousness and never turn away and never fall away and never sin against the living God. So as they witness this redemption thing, it's something they can witness, but they can't fully enter into it. Who then is joyful over the repentant sinner? Bringing us back to verse 10 of this chapter in verse 7. Who is the one doing the rejoicing? If it's not the angels who are joyful at the conversion of a sinner, who is truly joyful? Well, we must say, above all, preeminently, it is our Lord Jesus Christ himself who joys over the conversion of a sinner. The Bible says he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And as he sees each one coming to faith in Christ, he is rejoicing over them. And the Father, no doubt, to some degree, is pleased with all that the Son did, so he is pleased to see the fruits of all that the Son did. And the angels are witnessing the Father and Son rejoicing over the conversion of sinners. And doubtless those saints who have gone on before, who are about the throne and are witnessing these things, are rejoicing as well. Well, that was kind of a long uh, sidetrack. But that brings us back to the matter at hand, the parable of the lost son, or as it is better known, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, keeping in mind that too much is often read into or read out of parables, and keeping in mind the focus of this chapter, as we've already somewhat hinted at and outlined above, there are nevertheless a number of lessons and things that we can gather from this parable. I'm going to give you a seven-point outline. Sorry, that sounds long, but each one will be short. First of all, the divided inheritance. Secondly, the dissipation of the younger son. Thirdly, the desperation of the younger son. Fourthly, the determination of the younger son. Fifthly, the delight of the father. Sixthly, the disgruntled older son. And seventhly, the defensive Father. First of all, the divided inheritance. Look back now at uh, uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Literally, he divided to them his life, his living. Okay. Now, in that culture and at that time, it would be proper for a son to be bold enough to approach his father and say, I want my inheritance now. Can you give me what portion is mine? Now, he might be better off waiting. He would most likely be better off waiting. And in his case, absolutely, he would have been better off waiting. But nevertheless, there was a sense in which he had a right to put in his claim. And so he did. And as he does so, the father divides it between his two sons at that time. That leads us 
to the dissipation of this younger son. What does he do with his inheritance? Verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. With prodigal living. Or we might say the old King James has riotous living. The word there is only used there in the whole New Testament. The NSAB, I think, has wild living. The ESB, reckless living. But you get the sense of it. It was wasteful. It was thoughtless. It was prodigal. Now here is a portrait for us of the natural man. A picture for us of what man is like in his natural state. Wanting and wasting. Wanting and wasting. Wanting, coveting, getting his inheritance, and living on it in a dissolute, wasteful manner. Satisfying his yen, his urge, his pleasures. Eat, drink, and be merry. With no thought of the future, no concern for others, and in his case, no reflection on the labors and the effort and the sacrifice that secured to him that inheritance to begin with. All that his father had, had uh, gathered up and saved and scrimped and suffered for, he gives to his son. And the son, thoughtless of his father, and all that he did for him, goes out and wastes it. This is a picture of a natural man. Much more, we see the spiritual poverty of the natural man. What man is by nature, proud and self-willed, no appetite for fellowship with God, no inclination to learn his word. They go afar off into distant lands. The temporary pleasures of sin for a season grab and garrison them into a bondage and lost condition that they are utterly blind to themselves. They're like Bunyan's man in the cage, trapped in their by their own lusts and desires, they've entrapped themselves. As John describes in 1 John, they walk in darkness and do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. They've sinned and their sins have made them even deafer and blinder and more incorrigible to the things of God. That's the natural man as he goes on in his path. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 21, we read this, An inheritance may be gotten hastily at first, but the end thereof shall not be blessed. It would not be blessed in his case. My wife and I know some friends, and uh, the sons all inherited about a million dollars. And the father was wise enough to tie up most of it, but they had a couple hundred thousand dollars right there in their hands. Okay, they grew up fairly poor, never had money of that sort. And the one son spent it all, mostly in Las Vegas, in less than a year, all that he had. So an inheritance can be wasted away. A picture for us of how we squander the good things of God. A picture to us to learn from. So we see the divided inheritance, the dissipation of the younger son. Thirdly, we see the desperation of the younger son. Look with me at verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, 
and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Focus on those words just for a minute. And when he had spent all. There ought to be a fearful spiritual parallel to that. Does there come a point when we've squandered every opportunity to be received into the good grace of God, to be received into his family? Is there a great danger there that we squander the good things of God? Here, our young son, uh, the whole of his inheritance, down to the uttermost farthing, the last drachma, the final dime, gone, wasted, spent. In Proverbs 19, verse 4, we read this, Wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his friends. So with the loss of his money came also, no doubt, the loss of his friends, or his companions, his drinking and partying buddies. They're lost to him now. They go away from him now. He can't buy the next round. He doesn't have any more money. His companions stuck with him only as long as the money held out. You know friends like that. You've seen this played out in the world. No friends, no money. What else could befall our wandering prodigal? There arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Now, now it comes home to roost in a greater way, because he has nothing even to sustain himself. He has not apparently gone out and learned some skill to provide for himself. And he joins himself to a citizen of that country. He joins himself to a citizen of that country. Now, the idea there is not simply that I'm going to go work for this fellow. He probably was bound to him with some kind of obligation. He may not have been an outright slave, but nearly so that he had bound himself to this man to serve in his field and feed the swine. Our prodigal has come all the way down to this. We read elsewhere in Proverbs how these things fall out. The way of transgressors is hard. Evil pursues sinners. Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way. All these Proverbs are being lived out before our eyes in his life and the way that he's come. We can multiply verses, but the sinner doesn't know himself, does not acknowledge the predicament he is in. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, and that mire and dirt blind him to his own condition. Ruin follows riot on the heels. The commentator John Trapp comments here. It is the Christian who can sing, There is a sunshine in my soul today. But for the lost soul, estranged in a far country, he has but a flickering occasional artificial light that must be primed, must be relit, and must be stoked by some passing delight, externally stimulated and supplied. But the true child of God has an abiding internal supply, implanted by the new birth and refreshed by the Spirit through the means of grace. See what a lost man looks like. Remember what you were as a lost man. You wanted some passing, flickering pleasure. It had to be externally stimulated. All men's miseries stem from this. 
His inability to sit in a quiet room alone, Pascal once wrote. And here it is with him. He has nothing uh, to rely on. He was dependent on those possessions to make him glad and to make him happy. J.C. Ryle comments, The secret wretchedness of natural man is exceedingly great. There is a famine within. However much they try to conceal it, they are in want. Not just his physical condition, his spiritual condition, he is in want. Well, what next for our prodigal? He joins himself. Look with me at verse 15 again. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Now note here a couple things. One, he went to feed swine. What was that to the Jews? They abhorred swine. It was an unclean animal. Why would they have anything to do with it? But his desperate condition led him to that. And then they were eating these pods. And the description of them is kind of like a bean tree pod. Those long pods with the beans in them. Not very tasteful at all. uh, But nutritious and healthful for the pigs. For the swine. And he would even eat those. And no one gave to him. Now oftentimes, no one gives to the one who wastes his goods. There's some justice in that, isn't there? This prodigal has proven himself untrustworthy. He's wasted his goods. We're not going to give him anything else. But here I think the implication is, they barely gave him a scrap to eat, to sustain him as he worked in the fields for this citizen. So this citizen wasn't uh, a gracious and a nice citizen, as you can imagine. Vance Havner, the old uh, Southern uh, preacher, once said, If they had a social gospel in the days of the prodigal son, someone would have gave him a bed and a sandwich, and he never would have gone home. Now there's something to be said for that. We live in an age when there is the social gospel to be sure, but there's all kinds of safety nets that keep many sinners from turning to the true and living God because they find their needs supplied and their wants provided for. We need wisdom how we minister in those ways. That leads us in the fourth place to the determination of the younger son. The determination of the younger son. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now a change of mind is a first step toward a change of life. But it is only a first step. It is only a start. We can often make good resolutions that we don't follow through on. How many of my father's servants, he says... How often our motive for turning to the Lord is our own immediate crisis and need. 
how often our reason for turning to the Lord is our own immediate crisis and need. This is neither proof of grace nor proof of hypocrisy. The proof will be seen in the life to follow. Okay, we cannot conclude from this, aha, there's the work of grace begun. It may be, it may not be. It will be proven out in the life that follows. While there are no atheists in foxholes, there may be plenty of practical atheists as soon as they get back to base camp who've forgotten their good resolutions back when they were under fire in the foxhole and said, I'm going to, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to serve God, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do all these things. They get back to base camp, their buddies say, let's go out and get drunk. They forget all their good resolutions very quickly. Our prodigal, however, has now come to himself, has returned to his senses, could reason sensibly and clearly He charts a course. Reflection on his father's character plays a large part in his thinking. Reflection on his father's character plays a large part in his thinking. First of all, his father is generous. His servants have bread and to spare. They have bread and extra. His servants, how kindly his father treats his servants. His father, he knows, is kind. And he has good reason to hope that he will take me in as a servant. He will take me in and put me with the servants out in the bunkhouse to serve with them in the fields. That's his hope and expectation. Moreover, we have an even better hope for our prodigal that there was a genuine substance to his repentance. It was not just thoughts and resolutions. For we read this, he arose and went. He arose and And went. There was a breaking off, a turning away, a changing of course in life, a carrying through on his resolution and good intentions. It gave legs and joints and feet to his repentance. He got up and he went. He went. He didn't just think about it in his minds and thought, boy, that would be good. That leads us to the fifth place the delight of the Father. The delight of the Father. Look with me at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. This scene is the climax of the whole story, isn't it? There the father sees the son down the road, runs to him, moved with compassion. This is my son. Is he coming back? What follows after this, all that follows after this, we could say, uh, in literary terms, is the denouement, the, the falling out, the wrapping up of the rest of the story. But there is much more to it. Notice what he can say of this son. He was dead 
and is alive again. He's received his son back to life. He was good as dead in my sight. He was as good as dead. Here is a picture for us of what the unconverted man is. Dead in trespasses and sins. Dead in trespasses and sins. Until the grace of God restores us to our senses. Gives us the grace to turn unto the true and the living God. Gives us feet to run to Him. A heart to seek after Him. A mind to remember His goodness and His kindness. There is the work of grace. Coming from that lost condition. That lonely condition. That desperate condition. To the living and true God. And the Father receiving us. The Father receiving us with such love, compassion, and embrace. Well, the servants. Note with me something about the servants. The servants are about doing the Father's bidding. The Father is the one joyful, rejoicing. The servants are somewhat like the angels. They, as humans, certainly can enter into more of the joy of that Father, but they can't fully enter in because they're not the Father of that prodigal Son who has returned. But they are about serving and helping, bringing out the robe, the ring, and all the rest. There are the servants helping to see that prodigal Son received back into the family. Well, that leads us in the sixth place to the disgruntled elder brother. The disgruntled elder brother. Look with me at verse, uh, where do we leave off? Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. But he was angry and would not go in. Note how unkind and hard-hearted self-righteous man can be. How hard-hearted and disinterested they can be. Even the servant took an interest, said, your brother, your brother has come. That didn't move his heart. That didn't change his disposition. He stayed outside angry. What's going on? Well, that brings into view what Jesus was really teaching in all these parables. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 15. We often... uh, 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 take away from these parables, all three of them, this notion, which is right and proper, that it talks about the joy of finding what is lost and the finding and conversion of sinners. But Jesus told this parable also for another purpose. Verse, uh, chapter 1, or 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. He is addressing the Pharisees and scribes with this parable to this purpose. When they hear about a lost sheep being found, they can understand that. They can enter into that. 
That's part of my flock. That's part of my wealth and my money. And if I lose one of those sheep, what a great joy to get it back. And they can even understand how a woman, and the picture here is of a wife who has, this is often like a wedding gift, uh, a a belt of sorts with these ten uh, coins all around, and one of them popped off and got lost. It's almost like losing her wedding ring. So she seeks earnestly to find it, and when she finds it, what great joy. The Pharisees and scribes could perhaps also understand that. But could they understand losing a son and a son who goes out and wastes the living that the father gave him? No doubt they have no heart for that. And Jesus is sticking this back in their craw, so to speak, for them to see how hard-hearted they are to lost sinners and where they stand in relation to that. Notice that they... uh, Notice what the elder son goes on to say to them. Uh, Turning back to verse uh, 28. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat, much less the fatty calf, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. See how his anger is expressed? And somehow he knew what that younger son had been out doing. Reports must have came back, not only that he wasted uh, his inheritance, but he spent it on harlots all the evil things that he had been about doing. And he's come back. This, your son, notice how he sticks it in his father's face. This is your son. Parents, beware of that. When your children turn to you and say, this son of yours, this daughter of yours, about their siblings. There's some anger there. There's something brewing underneath that needs to be addressed if they have that kind of mentality toward their own brother and toward their own sister. So note that. And then seventhly, or yeah, seventhly we come to the defense of the father. How does the father respond to this elder brother? What is his response to his objection? You never even gave me a kid, a goat, The fatted calf for him, party, receive him. No thought of what he's done, so he thought. Verse 31, And he said to him, the father said to the elder son, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. All he has to do is repeat those same things. He was dead. Can't you understand that? Can't you appreciate the fact that he was lost in a far country? He was dead in trespasses and sin, and he's returned? Isn't that a great occasion for us to rejoice? It's right. It's meat, the father says to him. What do you suppose the Pharisees are thinking right about now? 
as they said on another occasion, this parable offends us. I think they probably got the point, maybe, right about then, and saw their own uh, picture mirrored in this parable before them. Well, what lessons can we learn and take away from this, summing it up? First of all, sometimes we draw wrong conclusions, a couple wrong conclusions. Some, wrong, some reason, we are all sons by nature and will be saved in the end. Well, that is to miss the point of the parable while grasping a piece of it. We might grasp this piece of it. Well, the elder son was still a son of the father. Therefore, he was saved. And the younger son returned. And he was saved, right? Well, we're all going to go to heaven. So, we're all sons by nature. What's the worry? Well, that's to miss the whole point of the parable, isn't it? It's seeing ourselves as that prodigal son, dead in trespass and sin, coming to Christ by faith, by his mercy. Another wrong conclusion we often take and presume upon is God's mercies. God's mercies are always ready. We see it in the picture of the father. He's standing there. As soon as he sees the son, he runs down the road to embrace him. God's mercies are always ready. So I can put off the day of repentance. I can put it off down the road. Sometime I'll get there. Therefore, accordingly, I'll, I'll just do that sometimes. Well, we need to take the rest of the Bible into the picture, right? Remember the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. And for the foolish, the day came when the door was shut. And they were shut out of the kingdom of God. A day will come when we'll be shut out. It's a wrong conclusion to think God's mercies are always ready I can just wait till I'm ready. God can just wait on me. That's not a right conclusion. What ought we to conclude? Rather, one, first and foremost, my salvation is owing entirely to the Father's grace, kindness, and pardoning mercies. This should ever be our remembrance and reflection. We should love to hear basic gospel messages like this again and again if we're the children of God. To be reminded, oh, what mercy God showed to us. What kindness He's bestowed on us. That should be a, a cause for remembrance and reflection. Thirdly, we should seek the Lord while He may be found. We should seek the Lord while he may be found. Fourthly, thirdly, lost sinners should be the objects of our love and pity. Okay? Here we get into a little bit our tendency to fall in with the elder son, to kind of scoff and sneer at lost sinners and have no sympathy or compassion for them in their lost estate. And if this parable would teach us anything, it should remind us that we're like the lost son and we should avoid anything resembling the elder son in the way that he views the repentance of the younger son. Fourthly, let us be heaven-like in joy and rejoicing 
at the conversion of every one sinner who is redeemed by Christ. There is joy in the presence of the angels. There is joy in heaven over one sinner that turneth. And we should be so joyful. We should enter into that joy. Whether we hear about it from a friend of a friend of a friend. Whether we hear about it in someone in our own family. It should be a cause of joy and rejoicing. Heaven's rejoicing. Why aren't we entering into that joy? Why aren't we saying, look, Christ has got another sinner saved by his grace. He's working that work that he promised to do. Seeing at the travail of his soul, gathering all in as he promised. All his elect will be gathered in. While we do not condone the crimes that they may have committed in their wanderings, we heartily welcome their conversion. We heartily welcome their conversion. Fifthly, we need the disposition of old John Hooper who prayed, Lord, I am hell, but thou art heaven. I am a soiled and a stink of sin, but thou art a gracious God. Thou art a gracious God. Sinner be exhorted. Christian be encouraged. He is indeed a gracious God. Confess and the mend is made. Acknowledge your sin. And he will cross it out of the book. Tyndale comments, Christ is that fatted calf, slain to make penitent sinners good cheer withal. And his righteousness is the goodly raiment to cover the naked deformities of their sins. There's full and complete salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only pardon and reception, but transformation and righteousness covering our deformities. Sixthly, we would be remiss to pass over what is perhaps Christ's immediate purpose, as we already hinted at, to show the scribes and Pharisees, to show the Jewish nation, and to show us our hard-hearted, self-righteous propensities. Consider how there lingers yet within our breasts the remnants of sin, the remnants of the elder brother syndrome, how it yet abides in our hearts, in our affections. Think with me of times when in the workplace, perhaps. Some, some new guy's there. He's only been there a short time. He's been late half the time. And yet he gets this promotion, and he's promoted, and you're passed over. Now, there can be some thought, well, that was unjust on behalf of my boss. But in the providence of God, should we not say, I have the mercy of God in Christ. My sins are forgiven. I'm accepted in the Beloved. By His grace, I'm going to heaven forever. How should these earthly matters uh, cause me to be angry and disgruntled like that? What if you're a woman who desires, a young wife who desires to have a child, and you've begun trying and trying, and perhaps it's been a year or two, and then your cousin, who doesn't even want children, oh, she drinks and smokes and parties and she gets pregnant without even trying, without even wanting to have a child. And you say, Lord, why her? Why? God owes us nothing. 
God owes us nothing. Remember, we're accepted in the beloved, forgiven for his namesake, on our way to heaven. We have all these things to rejoice about. We should be able to look on someone else and rejoice with them. Whatever comes into their lives. God searches us out by those things. Tests if there's a little bit of that remnant of that elder brother in us. Disgruntled. This your son. Look look at this wicked sinner God and what you've done for him. Remember Psalm 73 when the psalmist fretted about the prosperity of the wicked. Until he went in to the house of God and understood their end. Now judgment would eventually come upon them. He has set them in slippery places. They will bear their judgment whosoever they be. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, we're told time and again. And let us rather be like those in heaven in whose presence the angels witness their joy and rejoicing. Let us enter in to the joy of our Lord even now in anticipation of the day when we'll enter in fully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we need reminders. We need you to search us out, Lord God, whatever uh, self-righteous remnants remain in us, trusting to ourselves, trusting to our works, forgetting the grace shown to us in the past. Oh, Father, open the eyes of the blind here today and open the senses to reason through these things and come in faith to Jesus Christ. And for those not here, our friends, our relatives, those to whom the Word of God has been given in some measure, the seed cast and sown, Father, may it even this day bear fruit. And may we come next week rejoicing of a work of grace you've done in some and in many. In Jesus' name, amen.